Hey, everybody, good morning and welcome uh, to Christ Community Chapel. Uh, if you are worshiping over in East Hall, welcome. If you are tuning in, uh, welcome. I'm really, really glad uh, that you're here. And I want to start out by just telling you again how much I love you guys, how much I love uh, this church, how much I love being a part of this church. And I want you to know how grateful I am uh, for the number of emails that I've received this week and notes of encouragement and, uh, and support. That has meant more uh, than you know. But I also want to say I'm sorry. I could have done better. I should have done better. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, you can say to somebody, you can say to me, I support you, I encourage you, I love you, and then at the same time say, but wow, what a miss. What a, what a bad thing that you've done. Right? Because that's the gospel. One of the, the best notes I got this week, I got from somebody who said, I was trying to think of what I should say to you, and I decided to just tell you what I heard my pastor say one time, you are more flawed than you have ever wanted to admit to anyone, but because of Jesus, you are more deeply loved than you have ever dared to dream. And I thought, oh man, that's it, isn't it? That's the gospel. And the gospel is the, the healing balm for the whole world. The gospel is what you need. It's what the people sitting next to you need. It's what the people out there need. It's what I need. And I want us to be a church where we don't just preach the gospel. We live the gospel. We receive the gospel. We give the gospel. We love the gospel. Because there's nothing like it. It is the only thing that has the power to heal the brokenness inside of your soul, inside of my soul, and the brokenness of this world. So we want to be a church that's all about that gospel. So thanks. All right, we are still in our summer series that we're calling The Dirty Dozen, which is an appropriate series right now. We're looking at 12 people in the Bible that are unlikely people for God to care about, for God to love, for God to use, and yet he does. They're unlikely because they are broken people, they have made mistakes, they have deep character flaws, and yet, and yet God still uses them. And the person we're going to look at today is probably the most surprising of any that we've seen so far, the thief on the cross. And I say he's the most surprising because he's got no rope left. He's got no life to live, to give to God. He has no way to be used. He's within minutes of dying. And I say that's surprising because sometimes we think of God as being pragmatic, that he has saved you because he wants to use you, but that's not why he saves you. I mean, he wants to use you because that's part of his plan to give you great joy, but that's not why he saves you. He saves you just because he does. And maybe that's why we have this story of this man who is dying on a cross right next to Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 23. I'm going to read the story. It's also the text is going to show up on the screen. Luke chapter 23, I'll begin reading at verse 32 and read through verse 43. 
That's what it says. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's word. All right, so there are three men that are dying, and my first question is why? Why three men? Why doesn't, have, why doesn't God have Jesus die alone? I mean, this entire book is all about Jesus. He's the main character. Everything before this has to do with pointing toward Jesus. Everything after points back to Jesus on the cross. So why doesn't God have Jesus on that hill all by himself? Instead, he is flanked by two other men, and there are three men dying. And the answer is that God wants to teach us something through each of these three dying men, and here are my three points. One dying man asks the wrong question. One dying man asks the right question. And one dying man gives a stunning and shocking answer. One dying man asks the wrong question. One dying man asks the right question. And one dying man gives a stunning and shocking answer. First, One dying man asked the wrong question. This is the first thief. I'll start in verse 35. It says, And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This first thief, he says, Listen, if you are who you say you are, save yourself and us. It's actually a statement. But there's a question embedded in that statement. And the question that's embedded in that statement is this. Will you prove who you claim to be by doing what I want you to do? Will you prove who you claim to be by doing what I want you to do? Now, I want to be very careful with this guy. I don't want to demonize him because it's a very easy question to ask. And in that way, it's not a bad question. It's the wrong question. Let me unpack that for you. Let me explain why it's not a bad question, but why it's the wrong question. 
It's not a bad question because the cross doesn't make sense to this guy. He's hanging on a cross, dying. Jesus is right next to him, hanging on a cross, dying. The difference between the two is that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And so this guy looks over at Jesus and he says, basically, what are you doing up here? It doesn't make sense. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Savior of the world, why are you up here with me? It says that the in the passage that people were mocking him, of course they were mocking him. Right? Because here this guy claims to be the savior of the world, that he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. I'm the son of God, the chosen one. And he can't even pull himself off a tree. It's like if I was claiming to be the strongest man in the world, and you said to me, if you're the strongest man in the world, then lift the music stand that's next to you. And I look at the music stand, and I just go, ah, can't do it. You would mock me. Because it just wouldn't make sense. The cross didn't make sense to this guy, but the cross is hard. It doesn't make sense to a lot of people. The cross is very hard to hold on to, and the reason is because the cross shouts two different things. And we usually are able to embrace one, but we will reject the other, or we'll embrace the other and reject the one. And this is what I mean. Let me try to use this illustration. Our country's divided. It's divided in a lot of ways, but let me divide it this way. There are people in our country that tend to lean toward the liberal side, and there are people in our country that tend to lean toward the conservative side. And before you choose your camp, wait for the end of the illustration. Just warning you. All right. So when the the cross shouts two things, the first thing that the cross shouts is the holiness of God. The God is a holy God, and his standard is incredibly high. And when you break his standard, when you sin, the payment for that sin is also incredibly high, and nothing short of the death and crucifixion of God's only Son and his blood poured out is enough to satisfy that holiness of God. For some people, that's very, very hard to grasp and embrace. I read an article last week about the TV show The Bachelorette. Okay, notice I said I read the article and didn't watch the show. But So I read this article, and in the article, uh, it says that this woman, who is The Bachelorette, was defending her sexual history. And she said this, I will not be, and they put this in quotes, sin-shamed by anyone. What a great phrase. Sin-shamed. What she's saying is, listen, I'm not going to be held to anybody's standard but my own. And I get to decide what's right and wrong for me. The problem with that is the cross says that all of us are sin-shamed. Because there is one who has the right to make the standard, and his standard is incredibly high. And usually if people kind of lean toward the liberal side, they tend to not want to embrace the holiness of God. They want to say, I want to live the way I want to live. I get to decide what's right and wrong for me. But then the cross also shouts something else. Other than the holiness of God, the the cross shouts the limitless love and grace of God. 
which says no matter how you lived, no matter what you've done, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter how deep your character flaws, you can be forgiven of every single thing. So great is the grace of God. And the people who understand the holiness of God, who understand the standard of God, when they see someone break the holiness of God and the standard of God, they can sometimes be the most judgmental people. And those are people who kind of lean toward the conservative side. But there's something of a liberal and a conservative in each of us, isn't there? There's something inside of us that is liberal with ourselves. When we do something, we end up knowing why we did it. We have reasons for why we act the way we do, why we make the mistakes that we make. So we're liberal with ourselves. Then we see someone else. If the right person does the wrong thing, we look at them and say, how could you do that? How could you disappoint me like that? And we condemn them. The cross is very hard. That's why the gospel is hard for anyone to hold on to and to live out day after day because the cross shouts both the holiness of God and the grace of God. And we're called to embrace both. This guy's question is not a bad question. It's not a bad question because he's saying, listen, I don't understand why this is happening to me, and if you, if you love me, then you'll do something. But it's the wrong question. Let me explain why it's the wrong question. He's giving Jesus a test. He's saying, Jesus, listen, I have a felt need right now. It's an immediate need. It's a big need. I'm going to be dead in just a few minutes unless you do this for me. So here's the test. If you are who you say you are, then you'll agree with me on this and you'll do this for me. And if you do this for me, then I will believe. I will be convinced. He's not looking at Jesus. He's not looking at Jesus' claims. He's not looking at Jesus' miracles. He's saying, I don't care about any of that. All I care is about what I'm going through right now. And I'm asking you, if you want me to believe in you, then you need to do this. If you don't do this for me, then you are not the Christ. You are not the Messiah. You are not my Savior. I still remember seeing an interview with Ted Turner, the founder of the Turner Broadcasting Network. And in the interview, he said, I, was, I believed in Jesus as my Savior until I was 16. And then my sister died of leukemia, and I quit believing in Jesus. And when he said that, he, he didn't say, I quit believing in Jesus because I did research on him. I, I, he didn't say, I quit believing in Jesus because of the, I examined the claims of Jesus, or there was insufficient evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. He said, I quit, Jesus, I quit believing in Jesus because I gave him a test, and he failed me. A lot of people do that. It's an easy thing to do, but the reason it's the wrong question is that if you say to God, listen, I'll only believe in you as God if you agree with me on this. Whatever that this is, what you are saying to God, you don't want a God who is bigger than you, who is smarter than you. What you want is a God who will be like a personal assistant to you, who will do what you want him to do. And then it's just a matter of time until your, your personal assistant doesn't do what you want your personal assistant to do, and so you fire them. And I meet people all the time who have fired God because they gave him a test, and he didn't pass the test. 
The reason this is the wrong question is because it starts in the wrong place. It starts with this felt need. This man is saying, listen, I, I, I don't understand why this is happening to me. I don't understand why I'm going through this suffering. And if you, if you love me, if you are who you say you are, then you will, you will get me out of this. If that's the wrong question, then what's the right question? We go to the second dying man. This is verse 40. It says, But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If the wrong question starts with, Why is this happening to me? The right question starts when you say, Why is this happening to him? Why is this happening to Jesus? And the second dying man, actually there are three parts to his question. The first part of his question is that he says, listen, we are getting what we deserve. I understand why I am suffering. I understand I'm okay with why I am dying. I deserve this. That's a remarkable statement. Because the vast majority of us, when we go through any kind of suffering, our first question is, why is this happening to me? Because we don't feel like we deserve to suffer. We don't feel like we deserve to die. But this guy understood. This guy said, I I understand why I'm dying. Listen, there are two people being crucified right next to Jesus. One ends up radically changed, and the other remains the same. The one that remains the same, he says to Jesus, this is how I'll know you are who you say you are. If you do what I want you to do, then I will believe in you. If you get me out of this predicament, then I'll believe. The second thief says, I'm okay with being in trouble. I'm okay with this predicament as long as I can be with you. That's the first thing that happens. Listen, if if Jesus is ever going to change you, you might have to change the way you tend to look at yourself and why you suffer and why you're going through what you're going through. But then the second thing that this guy does in his question is he looks at Jesus and he says, "The, the, the thing that puzzles me is why is this happening to you? I understand why this is happening to me, but why are you going through this? You don't deserve this. Why are you going through this? That's the very essence of a good question, right? To say, why did Jesus die? Why is Jesus going through what he doesn't deserve to go through? And without even realizing it, what this second thief is doing is he's beginning to unwrap the gospel because we know why Jesus went through what he didn't deserve. He went through what he didn't deserve so he could give us what we don't deserve. He could give us what he did deserve, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that brings me to the third part of this guy's question. And something happens to him when he, he sees himself in deserving what he is suffering, and he doesn't connect his suffering with how much, how much Jesus loves him. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, I get why I'm going through this, but I don't get why you are going through something you don't deserve. And that made him see something in Jesus that the other thief never saw. And that led him, led the second thief to ask something that is absolutely outrageous to Jesus. He says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a wild thing to ask Jesus. 
Because Jesus has given no indication that he's going to change, that, he, that he's going to do anything but die. But this guy has seen something, and he says to Jesus, listen, I don't know. I don't know where you're going, but all I know is I want to be with you when you go there. Why would he think he could ask Jesus that? Why would he think Jesus would do that for him? I remember reading a story about Alexander the Great. And the story goes that a a general, one of his generals, came in to see him. And the general said, Alexander, I have one daughter. And she's about to get married, and I want to give her an extravagant wedding, but I can't afford it. So I've come to ask you, will you pay for my daughter's wedding as extravagant as I want it to be? And Alexander the Great said, yes. Give your daughter the wedding of her dreams. Make it as extravagant as you want. Give me the bill. I will pay it all. And the general left, and somebody came up to Alexander the Great and said, why? Why would you ever do that for him? And Alexander the Great said, well, he paid me two great compliments in asking me. The first compliment, he, when he asked me to pay for his daughter's wedding, he believed that I could, that I had the resources to do something absolutely extravagant for him. And when he asked me to do it, he also believed that I would, that my generosity was as extravagant as his request. That second thief on the cross looks at Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the reason he asked that is because he believed Jesus could and that Jesus would. And that brings me to the third thing, which is the one dying man gives a stunning and shocking answer. This is verse 43. It says, And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says, okay. The dying thief says, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, Jesus says, okay, it's done. And I used to always think that the most surprising, most stunning word in that sentence that Jesus says to him was the word paradise. That Jesus was saying to him, listen, I know that you have not lived the life that you should have lived. I know that you have lived a life that got you to this place where you're on the cross and you have nothing to offer me. You have no rope left, no life left. And still, I will give you heaven. Amazing. Shocking. But that's not the most surprising, not the most stunning word in that sentence. The most surprising and stunning word in that sentence is the word with. Do you see it? Jesus says, today you will be with me. If you have a Bible, you should circle that word. It's a loaded word. Jesus is saying to this dying thief, I am here going through this with you now. And then where I'm going, you will be with me there. And I say it's a loaded word because Jesus is making three promises when he says, you will be with me and I will be with you. He's saying, you will be with me in the courtroom, at the coronation, and in the celebration. I will be with you in the courtroom, at the coronation, and in the celebration. First in the courtroom. 1 John 2, verse 1. John says, my little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate 
with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate is the same word that we use for attorney. What John is saying is that, listen, you have an attorney, a representative, if you go into the courtroom. And what Jesus is telling this thief on the cross is that the first place you're going to head when you breathe your last on this earth is you will find yourself in the courtroom and the judge is God and he is holy. You will one day stand in that courtroom too. Everyone will, right? The mortality rate here is still hovering right around 100%. Right? So you're going to stand before God, and the question is, who will represent you? Jesus promises this dying thief when he says, I will be with you, you will be with me. He first says, I'll be with you in the courtroom. And you know how that works, right? When you go into a courtroom with an attorney, that you are connected to your attorney. So if your attorney is good, you're good. If your attorney is smart, you're smart. If your attorney wins, you win. So you go into this courtroom with Jesus. And I always want to finish off this picture with you. That when you go into the courtroom, when I go into the courtroom, when I breathe my last on this earth, and I open my eyes again, and I'm in the courtroom facing God, a holy God, and Jesus is beside me, and he says, I am your representative. We should know how that goes. Jesus doesn't look at God and say, God, I'm here with Joe, and I just want to ask for your mercy I know he made some mistakes, but his heart was in the right place. He tried. Please be merciful. That's not it. What Jesus is going to say to God is this. God, you are a holy God. And you know, Joe, he didn't come close to living up to your holiness in any way. He made thousands of mistakes, thousands of sins. His heart is not good. And he deserves hell and to be separated from you forever. But, but, I do. I deserve your holiness. I lived up to your holiness. And then I paid for every one of his sins. So I'm not here to beg for mercy. I'm here to ask for justice. Right? And that's why 1 John 1.9 reads the way it does. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Not merciful, faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because what Jesus is saying to God, God, it would be unjust for you to demand two payments for the same sin, and I paid for every one of his. So that you can treat him the way you would treat me. Here's Joe. The first place Jesus promises this thief that he will be with him is in the courtroom. The second place is in the coronation. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. This is what it says. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that when Jesus dies, he resurrects, then he ascends into heaven. When he ascends into heaven, he sits down at the right hand of God the Father. That is the throne. That is the King of kings, Lord of lords. That's his place. And he says, when I am coronated as King of kings, Lord of lords, you will be with me, sitting there with me. It's incredible. 
And what he's saying is, it's not just Paul the apostle, not just Abraham, not just the heroes of the faith, but the thief on the cross will be there. You will be there. I will be there. Because Jesus says, you will be with me. I will be with you in the courtroom, at the coronation, and finally, in the celebration. This is the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 19. It says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. That's a reception. I told you a few weeks ago I had a wedding for my youngest daughter, Becca. After the wedding, we had a reception. Oh, and we wanted the reception to be full of love and joy and laughter and celebration. And it was. It was as full as we could afford to make it. But what do you think this reception will be like? What will the music be like to hear? What will the dancing be like? What will the feasting be like? What will the laughter be like? What will the joy be like in this celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb? Jesus is telling this man who has no rope left, no life to give, he turns to him and he says, you will be with me in paradise. I will be with you in the courtroom, at the coronation, in the celebration. Listen, Jesus comes to you. He doesn't come to you to say, I want to save you so I can use you. He comes to you and says, I want to save you. If you will ask me, then I will be with you. With you in the courtroom, at the coronation, in the celebration, in joy forever. So great, so amazing is this Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, come to you, and we are, uh, I am amazed that you uh, love us so that you would go through what you went through, even though you didn't deserve it, so that you can offer us what we do not deserve, which is to be with you. I pray for every person here that you will remind all of us who call you our Savior what it means when you make these promises to us and what we have to look forward to. And for those who have not yet come to you and ask you, I pray that they will turn to you now and say simply, remember me when you come into your kingdom and hear you say to them, you will be with me, with me. Jesus, you are a wonderful Savior. We worship you. We love you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.